0: Once again, welcome to our assembly, and uh, this morning we are going to start a new sermon series where we talk about the nature of the church as it goes, uh, as it is the people of God, into the community and how it, it does make a change for the kingdom of God in the world that God created. And let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, although our finiteness is a frustration, there is something in being able to look down at our hands, to look at our face in the mirror, and to see clay that was made wet and that you breathed life into. And to know that we are not alone in this universe, but that you have made us. And that in having made us, you have created us in purpose, a purpose that never leaves us. Although the detour of fallenness, Father, is great, so great that it took a cross, and love, and power, and resurrection for that purpose to be embedded in our souls once again as we live as your people. And as we think about what it means, Father, to be your people, we ask with all of our heart, in fact, we plead, Father, for our minds are finite. We plead, Father, in the name of Jesus, that you will give us eyes to see, ears to hear, in such a way, That the impact, the full impact of your word will fall upon us and we will turn fully, completely, full bodily to you in complete submission and surrender. This we pray with all of our hearts in the name of Jesus and we all say. August 15th, just a couple of weeks ago, August 15th is always going to be a very special day to me. It's going to be uh, a significant day for me. You know why? It's the beginning of the football season. More accurately, two-a-day practices. Back in the day, two-a-days meant that you'd get there early on, in the morning, you'd practice through the morning, uh, hit lunchtime, have kind of an extended lunch break, and then come back in the afternoon in the heat of the day and practice sometimes into the early evening. And it was brutal, it was hot, you thought you were going to die of thirst. It was an opportunity for coaches to kind of get in shape at yelling at kids. And the next thing you know, it's just, you know, it's just practice and practice and practice, and it's drill after drill after drill after drill, sprint after sprint after sprint after sprint. After sprint. I mean, it seems you're running all the time. You're, you're running sprints, you're, you're running forwards, you're running backwards, you're running sideways, you're running uphill, you're running with somebody on your back, and you're learning the playbook which means that as you're learning the plays, you spend some time walking through those plays, and then you kind of go half speed through those, those plays, and then there comes a point where you run through those plays, and it's practice, 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 and you get to put on the pads with shoulder pads and the helmet, and you get to run into people at full speed. I loved every second of it. And then school starts, and practice move moved to the afternoon. And air, all the energies and all the efforts and uh, all the activity begins to funnel down towards one thing, and that's game day. And game day would appear and show up on the calendar, the day would arrive, and you go into the locker room, and your teammates are there, and you're getting coached up and last-minute meetings and these kinds of things, and then you know, you're putting on the uniform, and then it's kind of quiet. And then the team together, the time has come, the team together walks out of that locker room down the hallway out onto the field, and the season kicks off with a kickoff. Season begins with a kickoff, and it's game on. Now, let me step out of the sermon just for a minute. Public service announcement. In these short minutes that I've been talking about the beginning of football, John Skipworth has gotten fired up, and he is looking for somebody to tackle. (laughs) And so, word to the wise... Word to the wise. If you see John out in the parking lot, make sure you maintain distance. Good if you have a couple of cars between you and John. Word to the wise. Word to the wise. Now, question. What if the team decided not to leave the locker room? What if the team said, you know what? I like the uniform. I like the comfort of the locker room. I like the camaraderie. I don't want to go out on the field. I don't want to go out on the field. What would happen if the team decided not to leave the locker room and not to go out onto the field? Well, there are lots of things that would take place, right? I mean, all of that efforting over the last couple of weeks for nothing. All of that energy, all of that sweat equity, all of of the, the activity that you have been doing, the torture being yelled at, all of that is in vain. In other words, there's no kickoff. Game on becomes no game. Let me ask you another question. What do you think of when somebody says to you the word church? As in, uh, where do you go to church? Or how was church today? Now, for most of us, like myself, who grew up uh, all of life a part of a church family, we think of a building, we think of an address, we think of a location. We think of a room like this with pews and uh, old hymnals. We think of a pulpit. We think of a baptistry. We, we think of a fellowship hall with, with shelves of, of, of lost and forgotten Tupperware. We, we think of poorly dipped, you know, lit bathrooms. That's what we think. Or we think about what happens in the auditorium between 10.30 and 11.30 on Sunday mornings. Now, the original Greek word in the New Testament, ekklesia, it's this word up here on the screen, is a word that when people used it, it was, it was, it was a reference to people. It meant a, a collection of people. It meant a congregation of people. It meant an assembly. It meant a congregation. And when someone made reference in the ancient world to ecclesia, people thought of people like you and me who had put their faith in Christ Jesus. And that's the way that the early church thought about church. They thought people. But then we speed down history a couple of centuries to the early 4th century, and Rome, the empire that has been the empire for so many centuries, is pitted in civil war. And in particular, there are these two fellows, one by the name of Constantine I, the other one, a fellow by the name of Maxentius, are, are against each other, and they, they're, they're trying to, to figure out who is going to be the big boss of the empire. And so they decide in the year 312 that they're going, their armies are going to meet at the Milvian Bridge, which is a bridge over the Tiber River. And when the dust settles, who's going to be the emperor is going to be settled? Well, on October 27th, 312, as Constantine is making his way to the Milvian Bridge area in the battlefield with his army, he knows he's outgunned and he knows that he's outmanned. And as he's looking into the sun, he sees a vision. And in that vision, what he sees is something that looks like an X with a P on top of it. It's up here on the screen. That X and that P are act- actually a chi and a rho, uh, a ch and an R sound that make up the first two letters of the word Christ. He sees that in a vision in the sun, and he hears in his ear a voice that says, in this you will conquer. He thinks it's a legitimate vision, and he decides that's the symbol I'm going to put on all my standards. And so the next day, the day of battle, October 28th, 312 A.D., his army and the armies of Maxentius meet each other. Uh, Maxentius is killed in battle. He actually drowns in the Tiber River. Constantine wins the day, and eventually Constantine becomes the emperor of the entire Roman Empire. Now, up to this point, church had been quite persecuted. And although it's debated, most scholars believe that at this point, Constantine has become a Christian. And so the church, the people, the disciples of Jesus, who had felt the, the, the sharp edge of persecution from the Roman Empire a couple of times leading up to Constantine, now that Constantine is a Christian, and now that he is the emperor, the church is receiving a much more favored status. And so although it's good in the sense that the church is no longer going to be persecuted, what we do begin to see are the beginning elements of the institutionalization of the church. A lot of the pomp and the circumstance that you see happening in empire ceremonies begin to make their way into the worship assemblies. And then on, on top of that, uh, Constantine, who, who is uh, an imaginative and, and creative individual, he takes the floor plans of a basilica. A basilica was just a public building. It was just a place where legal hearings and renderings were made. He takes that simple rectangular-shaped floor plan, of the Basilica. He changes it up just a little bit so that if you're looking at it as the crow flies it looks more like a cross. And it's out of that floor plan that we get some of the strange words that we have in English today like nave and apse and narthex and these kinds of things and those buildings begin to pop up all over the place. Now we speed down the road of history a little bit further and we find the Greek New Testament now being translated from Greek into our language, English. And the English translators decide that when they come to this word, ecclesia, what word are they going to use? What word are they going to use? What word are they going to be able to use to translate ecclesia? And they choose, and you know, English, we find our roots in a Germanic language. They decide that the German word that in English we say as church is going to be the word. Now, that Germanic word, church, means a religious building, a religious structure. And so a little bit of confusion began to set in as what was a word for people, ecclesia, began to be understood as a building. In other words, the word for the people became the word for the building and what happened in that building. Now, to the first century and the early Christians, the early disciples of Jesus, that would have made absolutely no sense whatsoever. That would have been like me standing out of my driveway next to my wife's car, and one of my friends in the neighborhood walks down the street, stops, uh, looks at the car, and he goes, man, you have a beautiful wife. And I'd say, I agree with that, I think she's beautiful too, but that's her car. She is not the car, Ellen is a people. She spends some time in that car, but she spends a lot of time outside of that car in the world. And, and there is no way that you should confuse the car with my wife. Now, when the early disciples tried to identify themselves, they would identify themselves as, as a people, part of a kingdom, part of a movement. I want to give you sort of an Absherian way. This is not exhaustive. Uh, In no way is it complete. But this is one of the ways that the early church, the early disciples of Jesus, thought about themselves. That Christianity is a movement of God-led, go-everywhere, gospel-sharing people, breaking down the gates of hell wherever those gates are found. Let me say that again. Uh, Christianity is a movement of God-led, go-everywhere, gospel-sharing people who are breaking down the gates of hell, wherever those gates are found in the world. Now, when we go back to the days of Jesus, the early days of Christ in Scripture, we see where this comes from. Number one, Matthew chapter 16. This is the text that Scotty read just a couple of minutes ago. We get this idea that the people of God are people who are involved with God in being gates of hell breakers. Now, in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus is heading to the north end. He's heading to the opposite end of Israel from where Jerusalem is. And he's going north to the region of Caesarea Philippi so that he can be with his disciples for a little while and do some individual teaching, help them to understand the nature of the kingdom and especially what's going to be happening in Jerusalem with the cross. And when he gets up there in the region of Caesarea Philippi, he says, i got a question for you fellas. Who did it people? I mean, you're out there on the street. Who do the people say that I am? And they say, well, you know, some people think you're Jeremiah, some people think you're Elijah, or one of the prophets. Some of them even think that you're John the Baptist. He says, oh, that's that's, that's interesting. Here's another question, and it's for you guys. Who do you say that I am? And this is where Peter, in 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 you know, who is usually you know putting you know. The only time he doesn't have a foot in his mouth is when he's taking one foot out and inserting the other. And so here is Peter in one of the most beautiful moments of his entire life. He said, I'll tell you who you are. You're the Christ. You're the Messiah. You're the Christ. And you are the Son of the living God. And, and Peter makes that great confession. And Jesus says, Blessed are you for making that statement. And then he says, and there's a wordplay on the word Peter, which means rock. He says, I tell you that you're Peter. And on this rock, I will build my what? Ecclesia. I will build my people. I will build my ecclesia, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now what's startling about that, if you've been to Israel, is that in the region of Caesarea Philippi is a cave at a place called Banyas that people in that period of time thought was actually the gateway into hell, into the underworld. It it was a bottomless pit. No one had ever been to the bottom of it, and it became uh, an object of pagan worship. And in the shadow of the mountain, in this region of Caesarea Philippi, Jesus is saying, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And you know how the story goes. Not long after that, he makes his way down into Jerusalem, and he is crucified And he dies on that cross, and he's buried. And on the third day, on the first day of the week, he is resurrected. And all of that takes place, and and this leads us to Acts chapter 1, where the part of it being a God-led movement and the go-everywhere part of that movement is found. Now, we're told in in Matthew chapter 28 that he tells his disciples to meet him on a mountain in in Galilee. In Acts chapter 1, we have Luke's version of what was said as Jesus is going to ascend from that mountain into heaven. And he says, uh, it's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. They've been asking, when is this all going to happen? You've resurrected from from the grave? That is such a significant, the most significant event in all of history, in the universe. When is the kingdom going to come? And Jesus says, it's going to be on God's timetable. It's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you are going to receive power When the Holy Spirit comes on you, at the end of Luke chapter 24, he says, power from on high is going to land on you, and you will be my witnesses. That is, you're going to talk about, you're going to testify, you're going to be witnesses to these things that you've experienced, that you've seen, that you've heard, that you know about. You're going to be my witnesses, beginning in Jerusalem, then going out to Judea and the region of Samaria, outside of of Jerusalem, and then to the ends of the earth. And the disciples are given a plan at that point, and this is what they're going to do. They're going to start in Jerusalem, and then it's going to go outside of Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria, to the outlying regions around Jerusalem. And then they're going to go into all of the earth. And that brings us to the gospel sharing part of it in Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 8, and Acts chapter 28. So they do it. They go into Jerusalem. Pentecost rolls around 10 days after the ascension of Jesus, 50 days after the resurrection. And all the disciples are together in one place. And on that day, Pentecost, in the morning, there is a sound like a great wind rushing through the house. It fills the house. Holy Spirit descends on these fellows, and it looks like they have flames of fire above them. And they're able to speak the words of the gospel in all of these different languages. The Holy Spirit had enabled them to speak in all of the different languages of the Jews who had come to Jerusalem for the great festival. Now notice that the size and the extent Of the crowd that is there. In Acts chapter 2, verse 9, Parthians and Medes and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, they said, We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, What does this mean? Well, Peter has grown up a lot in the last 50 days. And it, it's Peter who says, well, let me take an opportunity here to stand up in front of all of you and tell you exactly what this means. And he preaches the first sermon that is so powerful. And he talks about the gospel and he talks about God's plan, that they had been waiting as Jews for centuries and centuries and centuries to come about. And with boldness, he just gets up and he says, this is the truth. And he speaks it in such a way that the people who had been witnesses of all of this, are cut to the heart, which means that they are brokenhearted, that they had in their own mind, their own way of thinking, the ability to crucify their own Messiah. They're cut to the heart. And somebody in the crowd yells out, what must we do to be saved? And Peter says, I can answer that for you too. Repent. Change your life. And be immersed, be baptized for the remission of your sins. Be baptized into God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. And on that day, 3,000 people are baptized and repent and become a part of the ecclesia. Well, the church doesn't grow without resistance to it. And in Acts chapter 7, Acts chapter 8, There's this great persecution that breaks out against the church because of the martyrdom of Stephen. And we're told in chapter 8, verse 4, that those that are scattered into Judea and Samaria, second part of the plan, they preached the word wherever they went. They understood that everywhere they went, God was with them and they were to share the gospel in breaking down the gates of hell. And the rest of the book of Acts is about this fellow by the name of Saul who becomes Paul and who's converted to Christianity, and Barnabas and Silas and Timothy and others who go throughout the entire world preaching the gospel and planting these groups of people who recognize that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And the book of Acts ends like this, chapter 28. For two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house, and he welcomed all who came to see him. He proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. The church, Christianity, the people, is a movement of God-led, go-everywhere, people sharing, uh, uh, gospel-sharing people who are breaking down the gates of hell wherever the gates of hell are found. I'll say it again. This is, this is our faith. It is a movement into the world that is God-led, and it goes everywhere. It's gospel-sharing people, breaking down the gates of hell, wherever those gates are found. Question, but what happens if the team decides to stay in the locker room? What if those early disciples on the day of Pentecost decided to stay in that room? You know, just to be clear, I don't have... There, I, there is nothing absolutely nothing wrong. In fact, there are so many great things about having a church building. Church buildings can be great tools for introducing the next generation, our kiddos, to the faith and helping to disciple them into the faith that we've been teaching them in order for them to be faithful and vibrant. The next generation of of God-led, go-everywhere, gospel-sharing people that are breaking down the gates of hell wherever they're found. Church buildings can be a great place for the brokenhearted and hurting people from the community to meet with God's people and find the help that they need and to be ministered to and to be restored, their souls restored by God. Church buildings can be great for fellowship between believers and convenient for worship. But if there's something that we see in the early church, the early disciples, it is this, that the church in here... Is also the church out there. Heard recently of a restaurant in Chicago. It's uh it's it's been torn down, the original building been torn down, and uh new one has been built. But it's called Ed and I don't have to say this last name, Debovics. Anybody eaten there? Ed Debovics in Chicago? There's nothing really fancy about it. It's just an American food, uh uh hamburger chili kind of a diner. But they are known in Chicago because they have the Chicago attitude. And they are known for this little sign. It's up here on the screen. And at the bottom of this sign, it says, Eat and get out. Eat and get out. That's the attitude. Eat and get out. What if we were to tweak that a little bit for us and we were to say, Worship God together and get out. Worship God And get out. In fact, why don't you say that to the neighbor next to you? Worship God and get out there. (laughs) There's a little book called Holy the Firm by Annie Dillard. Annie Dillard is one of my favorite writers. And in this book, uh, there's this statement. She says, Nothing could more surely convince me of God's unending mercy than the continued existence on earth of the church. Why is there a church to show people the great mercy, the great forgiveness, the great love, and the great presence of God in His creation? And here's the thing. What the world is needing, what the world, our world, is needing, is precisely the kinds of things that matter to God. This building, as great as it is, and how much, I mean, this building is, you know, Richard Chow's second home. It's my second home. It's Douglas's second home. It's Cody's, you know, you you get what I'm saying. As great and as as convenient and as beautiful as this building is, it will never melt the heart of a human being. But God working through His people, empowering them to break down the gates of hell wherever they're found and in whomever they are found that will. And so that is why we feed the hungry, church. Church. That is why we clothe the naked and we visit the prisoners, the sick and the lonely. That's why we we help people to find jobs and we adopt a nearby elementary school and we help these little kids to get kind of a toehold in this world in helping them to learn how to read. And you know what else we do? We help lost people find their way home to God. The transformation of their hearts forgiveness of their souls we completely through the gospel are a part of the transformation of human beings where somebody can go throughout all of life even though there are these little inklings all over the place if there is a god they can go through life god has given us this power this this ability this 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 this, this terrible burden of free will that we can choose to ignore god unless there is an ecclesia nearby where the people have become such beautiful, disruptive presences in the world. Somebody says, I want a piece of that. We break down the gates of hell, wherever they're found. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. God is with you. So worship and get out.